Chapters 25 and 26 of Over the Top. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is recorded by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Over the Top by Arthur Ampey. Chapter 25 Preparing for the Big Push. Dejoining Atwell after the execution, I had a hard time trying to keep my secret from him. I think I must have lost at least ten pounds worrying over the affair. Beginning at seven in the evening it was our duty to patrol all communication and front-line trenches, making note of unusual occurrences, and arresting anyone who should, to us, appear to be acting in a suspicious manner. We slept during the day. Behind the lines there was great activity, supplies and ammunition pouring in, and long columns of troops constantly passing. We were preparing for the big offensive the forerunner of the Battle of the Somme, or Big Push. The never-ending stream of men, supplies, ammunition, and guns pouring into the British lines made a mighty spectacle, one that cannot be described. It has to be witnessed with your own eyes to appreciate its vastness. At our part of the line the influx of supplies never ended. It looked like a huge snake slowly crawling forward, never a hitch or break, a wonderful tribute to the system and efficiency of Great Britain's contemptible little army of five millions of men. Huge fifteen-inch guns snaked along, foot by foot, by powerful steam tractors. Then a long line of 4.5 batteries, each gun drawn by six horses. Then a couple of 9.2 howitzers pulled by immense caterpillar engines. When one of these caterpillars would pass me with its mighty monster in tow, a flush of pride would mount to my face, because I could plainly read on the nameplate, Made in USA, and I would remember that if I wore a nameplate it would also read, Made in USA. Then I would stop to think how thin and straggly that mighty stream would be if all the Made in USA parts of it were withdrawn. Then would come hundreds of limbers and GS wagons drawn by sleek, well-fed mules, ridden by sleek, well-fed men, ever smiling. Although grimy with sweat and covered with the fine white dust of the marvelously well-made French roads. What a discouraging report the German airmen must have taken back to their division commanders, and this stream is slowly but surely getting bigger and bigger every day, and the pace is always the same, no slower, no faster, but ever onward, ever forward. Three weeks before the big push of July 1st, as the Battle of the Somme has been called, started, exact duplicates of the German trenches were dug about 30 kilometers behind our lines. The layout of the trenches were taken from airplane photographs submitted by the Royal Flying Corps. The trenches were correct to the foot. They showed dugouts, saps, barbed wire defenses, and danger spots. Battalions that were to go over in the first waves were sent back for three days to study these trenches, engage in practice attacks, and have night maneuvers. Each man was required to make a map of the trenches and familiarize himself with the names and location of the parts his battalion was to attack. In the American Army, non-commissioned officers are put through a course of map-making or road sketching, and during my six years' service in the United States Cavalry, I had plenty of practice in this work therefore mapping these trenches was a comparatively easy task for me. Each man had to submit his map to the company commander to be passed upon, 
and I was lucky enough to have mine selected as being sufficiently authentic to use in the attack. No photographs or maps are allowed to leave France, but in this case it appealed to me as a valuable souvenir of the Great War, and I managed to smuggle it through. At this time it carries no military importance, as the British lines, I am happy to say, have since been advanced beyond this point, so it has been reproduced in this book without breaking any regulation or cautions of the British Army. The whole attack was rehearsed and rehearsed until we heartily cursed the one who had conceived the idea. The trenches were named according to a system which made it very simple for Tommy to find, even in the dark, any point in the German lines. These imitation trenches, or trench models, were well guarded from observation by numerous Allied planes which constantly circled above them. No German airplane could approach within observing distance. A restricted area was maintained, and no civilian was allowed within three miles, so we felt sure that we had a great surprise in store for Fritz. When we took over the front line we received an awful shock. The Germans displayed signboards over the top of their trench, showing the names that we had called their trenches. The signs read, Fair, Fact, Fate, and Fancy, and so on, according to the code names on our map. Then, to rub it in, they hoisted some more signs, which read, When are you coming over? Or, Come on, we are ready, stupid English. It is still a mystery to me how they obtained this knowledge. There had been no raids or prisoners taken, so it must have been the work of spies in our own lines. Three or four days before the big push we tried to shatter Fritz's nerves by faint attacks, and partially succeeded, as the official reports of July 1st show. Although we were constantly bombarding their lines day and night, still we fooled the Germans several times. This was accomplished by throwing an intense barrage into his lines, then using smoke shells we would put a curtain of white smoke across no man's land, completely obstructing his view of our trenches, and would raise our curtain of fire as if in an actual attack. All down our trenches the men would shout and cheer, and Fritz would turn loose with machine-gun, rifle, and shrapnel fire, thinking we were coming over. After three or four of these dummy attacks his nerves must have been near the breaking point. On June 24, 1916, at 9.40 in the morning, our guns opened up, and hell was let loose. The din was terrific, a constant boom, boom, boom in your ear. At night the sky was a red glare. Our bombardment had lasted about two hours when Fritz started replying. Although we were sending over ten shells to his one, our casualties were heavy. There was a constant stream of stretchers coming out of the communication trenches, and burial parties were a common sight. In the dugouts the noise of the guns almost hurt. You had the same sensation as when riding on the subway you entered the tube under the river going to Brooklyn, a sort of pressure on the eardrums, and the ground constantly trembling. The roads behind the trenches were very dangerous, because Bosch shrapnel was constantly bursting over them. We avoided these dangerous spots by crossing through open fields. The destruction in the German lines was awful, and I really felt sorry for them, because I realized how they must be clicking it. From our front-line trench, every now and again, we could hear sharp whistle-blasts in the German trenches. These blasts were the signals for stretcher-bearers, and meant the wounding or killing of some German in the service of his fatherland. Atwell and I had a tough time of it, patrolling the different trenches at night, 
but after a while got used to it. My old outfit, the Machine Gun Company, was stationed in huge elephant dugouts about 400 yards behind the front-line trench. They were in reserve. Occasionally I would stop in their dugout and have a confab with my former mates. Although we tried to be jolly, still, there was a lurking feeling of impending disaster. Each man was wondering if, after the slogan, over the top with the best of luck, had been sounded, would he still be alive, or would he be lying somewhere in France? In an old dilapidated house, the walls of which were scarred with machine-gun bullets, number three section of the machine-gun company had its quarters. The company's cooks prepared the meals in this billet. On the fifth evening of the bombardment, a German eight-inch shell registered a direct hit on the billet, and wiped out ten men who were asleep in the supposedly bomb-proof cellar. They were buried the next day, and I attended the funeral. CHAPTER Twenty Six. ALL QUIET ON THE WESTERN FRONT At Brigade Headquarters, I happened to overhear a conversation between our G.O.C., General Officer Commanding, and the Divisional Commander. From this conversation I learned that we were to bombard the German lines for eight days, and on the 1st of July the big push was to commence. In a few days orders were issued to that effect, and it was common property all along the line. On the afternoon of the eighth day of our strafing, Atwell and I were sitting in the front-line trench, smoking fags, and making out our reports of the previous night's tour of the trenches, which we had to turn into headquarters the following day when an order was passed down the trench that Old Pepper requested twenty volunteers to go over on a trench raid that night to try and get a few German prisoners for information purposes. I immediately volunteered for this job, and shook hands with Atwell, and went to the rear to give my name to the officers in charge of the raiding party. I was accepted, worse luck. At 9.40 that night we reported to the brigade headquarters dugout to receive instructions from Old Pepper. After reaching this dugout, we lined up in a semicircle around him, and he addressed us as follows. All I want you boys to do is to go over to the German lines tonight, surprise them, secure a couple of prisoners, and return immediately. Our artillery has bombarded that section of the line for two days, and personally I believe that that part of the German trench is unoccupied. So just get a couple of prisoners and return as quickly as possible. The sergeant on my right, in an undertone, whispered to me, "'Say, Yank, how are we going to get a couple of prisoners if the old fool thinks, personally, that that part of the trench is unoccupied? Sounds kind of fishy, don't it, mate?' I had a funny sinking sensation in my stomach, and my tin hat felt as if it weighed about a ton, and my enthusiasm was melting away. Old Pepper must have heard the sergeant speak because he turned in his direction and in a thundering voice asked, "'What did you say?' The sergeant, with a scared look on his face and his knees trembling, smartly saluted and answered, "'Nothing, sir.' Old Pepper said, "'Well, don't say it so loudly the next time.' Then Old Pepper continued, "'In this section of the German trenches there are two or three machine guns which our artillery, in the last two or three days, has been unable to tape. These guns command the sector where two of our communication trenches join the front line, and as the brigade is to go over the top tomorrow morning, I want to capture two or three men from these guns' crews. 
and from them I may be able to obtain valuable information as to the exact location of the guns, and our artillery will therefore be able to demolish them before the attack, and thus prevent our losing a lot of men, while using these communication trenches to bring up reinforcements. These were the instructions he gave us. Take off your identification discs. Strip your uniforms of all numerals, insignia, etc. Leave your papers with your captains, because I don't want the Bosch to know what regiments are against them, as this would be valuable information to them in our attack tomorrow, and I don't want any of you to be taken alive. What I want is two prisoners, and if I get them I have a way which will make them divulge all necessary information as to their guns. You have your choice of two weapons. You may carry your persuaders or your knuckle-knives, and each man will arm himself with four mills bombs, these to be used only in case of emergency. A persuader is Tommy's nickname for a club carried by the bombers. It is about two feet long, thin at one end and very thick at the other. The thick end is studded with sharp steel spikes, while through the center of the club there is a nine-inch lead bar to give it weight and balance. When you get a prisoner, all you have to do is just stick this club up in front of him, and believe me, the prisoner's patriotism for Deutschland Oberalis fades away, and he very willingly obeys the orders of his captor. If, however, the prisoner gets high-toned and refuses to follow you, simply persuade him by first removing his tin hat, and then, well, the use of the lead weight in the persuader is demonstrated, and Tommy looks for another prisoner. The knuckle-knife is a dagger affair, the blade of which is about eight inches long with a heavy steel guard over the grip. This guard is studded with steel projections. At night in a trench, which is only about three to four feet wide, it makes a very handy weapon. One punch in the face generally shatters a man's jaw, and you can get him with the knife as he goes down. Then we had what we called our come-alongs. These are strands of barbed wire about three feet long, made into a noose at one end. At the other end the barbs are cut off, and Tommy slips his wrist through the loop to get a good grip on the wire. If the prisoner wants to argue the point, why, just place the large loop around his neck, and no matter if Tommy wishes to return to his trenches at the walk, trot, or gallop, Fritz is perfectly agreeable to maintain Tommy's rate of speed. We were ordered to black our faces and hands for this reason. At night, the English and Germans use what they call star shells, a sort of rocket affair. These are fired from a large pistol about twenty inches long, which is held over the sandbag parapet of the trench and discharged into the air. These star shells attain a height of about sixty feet, and a range of from fifty to seventy-five yards. When they hit the ground, they explode, throwing out a strong calcium light which lights up the ground in a circle of a radius of between ten to fifteen yards. They also have a parachute star shell, which, after reaching a height of about sixty feet, explodes. A parachute unfolds and slowly floats to the ground, lighting up a large circle in no man's land. The official name of the star shell is a very light. Very lights are used to prevent night surprise attacks on the trenches. If a star shell falls in front of you, or between you and the German lines, you are safe from detection, as the enemy cannot see you through the bright curtain of light. But if it falls behind you, and, as Tommy says, you get into the star shell zone, then the fun begins. 
you have to lie flat on your stomach and remain absolutely motionless until the light of the shell dies out. This takes anywhere from 40 to 70 seconds. If you haven't time to fall to the ground, you must remain absolutely still in whatever position you were in when the light exploded. It is advisable not to breathe, as Fritz has an eye like an eagle when he thinks you are knocking at his door. When a star shell is burning in Tommy's rear, he can hold his breath for a week. You blacken your face and hands, so that the light from the star shells will not reflect on your pale face. In a trench raid there is quite sufficient reason for your face to be pale. If you don't believe me, try it just once. Then another reason for blacking your face and hands is that, after you have entered the German trench at night, white face means Germans, black face, English. Coming around a traverse you see a white face in front of you. With a prayer and wishing Fritz the best of luck, you introduce him to your persuader or knuckle-knife. A little later we arrived at the communication trench named Whiskey Street, which led to the fire trench at the point we were to go over at the top and out in front. In our rear were four stretcher-bearers and a corporal of the REMC, carrying a pouch containing medicines and first-aid appliances. Kind of a grim reminder to us that our expedition was not going to be exactly a picnic. The order of things was reversed. In civilian life, the doctors generally come first, with the undertakers tagging in the rear, and then the insurance man. But in our case, the undertakers were leading, with the doctors trailing behind, minus the insurance adjuster. The presence of the REMC men did not seem to disturb the raiders, because many a joke, made in an undertone, was passed along the winding column, as to who would be first to take a ride on one of the stretchers. This was generally followed by a wish that, if you were to be the one, the wound would be a cushy, blighty one. The stretcher-bearers, no doubt, were hoping that, if they did have to carry anyone to the rear, he would be small and light. Perhaps they looked at me when wishing, because I could feel an uncomfortable, boring sensation between my shoulder-blades. They got their wish all right. Going up this trench, about every sixty yards or so, we would pass a lonely sentry, who in a whisper would wish us, The bust of luck, mites! We would blind at him under our breaths. That Jonah phrase to us sounded very ominous. Without any casualties, the minstrel troop arrived in Suicide Ditch, the front-line trench. Previously, a wiring party of the Royal Engineers had cut a lane through our barbed wire to enable us to get out into no man's land. Crawling through this lane, our party of twenty took up an extended order formation about one yard apart. We had a tap code arranged for our movements while in no man's land, because for various reasons it is not safe to carry on a heated conversation a few yards in front of Fritz's lines. The officer was on the right of the line, while I was on the extreme left. Two taps from the right would be passed down the line until I received them. Then I would send back one tap. The officer, in receiving this one tap, would know that his order had gone down the whole line, had been understood, and that the party was ready to obey the two-tap signal. Two taps meant that we were to crawl forward slowly, and believe me, very slowly, for five yards, and then halt to await further instructions. Three taps meant when you arrived within striking distance of the German trench, rush it and inflict as many casualties as possible, secure a couple of prisoners, and then back to your own lines with the speed clutch open. 
Four taps meant, I have gotten you into a position from which it is impossible for me to extricate you, so you are on your own. After getting Tommy into a mess on the western front, he is generally told that he is on his own. This means, save your skin in any way possible. Tommy loves to be on his own behind the lines, but not during a trench raid. The star shells from the German lines were falling in front of us, therefore we were safe. After about twenty minutes we entered the star shell zone. A star shell from the German lines fell about five yards in the rear and to the right of me. We hugged the ground and held our breath until it burned out. The smoke from the star shell traveled along the ground and crossed over the middle of our line. Some Tommy sneezed. The smoke had gotten up his nose. We crouched on the ground, cursing the offender under our breath, and waited the volley that generally ensues when the Germans have heard a noise in no man's land. Nothing happened. We received two taps and crawled forward slowly for five yards. No doubt the officer believed what Old Pepper had said. Personally, I believe that that part of the German trench is unoccupied. By being careful and remaining motionless when the star shells fell behind us, we reached the German barbed wire without mishap. Then the fun began. I was scared stiff, as it is ticklish work cutting your way through wire when about thirty feet in front of you there is a line of Boches looking out into no man's land with their rifles laying across the parapet, straining every sense to see or hear what is going on in no man's land, because at night Fritz never knows when a bomb with his name and number on it will come hurtling through the air, aimed in the direction of Berlin. The man on the right, one man in the centre, and myself on the extreme left, were equipped with wire cutters. These are insulated with soft rubber, not because the German wires are charged with electricity, but to prevent the cutters rubbing against the barbed wire stakes, which are of iron, and making a noise which may warn the inmates of the trench that someone is getting fresh in their front yard. There is only one way to cut a barbed wire without noise, and through costly experience, Tommy has become an expert in doing this. You must grasp the wire about two inches from the stake in your right hand and cut between the stake and your hand. If you cut a wire improperly, a loud twang will ring out on the night air like the snapping of a banjo string. Perhaps this noise can be heard for only fifty or seventy-five yards, but in Tommy's mind it makes a loud noise in Berlin. We had cut a lane about halfway through the wire when, down the center of our line, twang, went an improperly cut wire. We crouched down, cursing under our breath, trembling all over, our knees lacerated from the strands of the cut barbed wire on the ground, waiting for a challenge and the inevitable volley of rifle fire. Nothing happened. I suppose the fellow who cut the barbed wire improperly was the one who had sneezed about half an hour previously. What we wished him would never make his new year a happy one. The officer, in my opinion, at the noise of the wire, should have given the four-tap signal, which meant, on your own, get back to your trenches as quickly as possible. But again he must have relied on the spiel that Old Pepper had given us in the dugout. Personally, I believe that that part of the German trench is unoccupied. Anyway, we got careless but not so careless that we sang patriotic songs or made any unnecessary noise. During the intervals of falling star shells we carried on with our wire cutting, until at last we succeeded in getting through the German barbed wire. At this point 
we were only ten feet from the German trenches. If we were discovered, we were like rats in a trap. Our way was cut off unless we ran along the wire to the narrow lane we had cut through. With our hearts in our mouths, we waited for the three-tap signal to rush the German trench. Three taps had gotten about halfway down the line, when suddenly about ten to twenty German star shells were fired all along the trench, and landed in the barbed wire in rear of us, turning night into day and silhouetting us against the wall of light made by the flares. In the glaring light we were confronted by the following unpleasant scene. All along the German trench, at about three-foot intervals, stood a big Prussian guardsman with his rifle at the aim, and then we found out why we had not been challenged when the man sneezed and the barbed wire had been improperly cut. About three feet in front of the trench they had constructed a single fence of barbed wire, and we knew our chances were one thousand to one of returning alive. We could not rush their trench on account of this second defense. Then in front of me the challenge, HALT, given in English rang out, and one of the finest things I have ever heard on the western front took place. From the middle of our line some Tommy answered the challenge with, Ah, oh, go to hell! It must have been the man who had sneezed or who had improperly cut the barbed wire. He wanted to show Fritz that he could die game. Then came the volley. Machine guns were turned loose and several bombs were thrown in our rear. The Boche in front of me was looking down his sight. This fellow might have, under ordinary circumstances, been handsome, but when I viewed him from the front of his rifle, he had the goblins of childhood imagination relegated to the shade. Then came a flash in front of me, the flare of his rifle, and my head seemed to burst. A bullet had hit me on the left side of my face about half an inch from my eye, smashing the cheekbones. I put my hand to my face and fell forward, biting the ground and kicking my feet. I thought I was dying, but do you know, my past life did not unfold before me the way it does in novels. The blood was streaming down my tunic, and the pain was awful. When I came to, I said to myself, Temp, old boy, you belong in Jersey City, and you better get back there as quickly as possible. The bullets were cracking overhead. I crawled a few feet back to the German barbed wire, and in a stooping position, guiding myself by the wire, I went down the line looking for the lane we had cut through. Before reaching this lane I came to a limp form which seemed like a bag of oats hanging over the wire. In the dim light I could see that its hands were blackened, and I knew it was the body of one of my mates. I put my hand on his head, the top of which had been blown off by a bomb. My fingers sank into the hole. I pulled my hand back full of blood and brains, then I went crazy with fear and horror, and rushed along the wire until I came to our lane. I had just turned down this lane when something inside of me seemed to say, Look around. I did so. A bullet caught me on the left shoulder. It did not hurt much, just felt as if someone had punched me in the back, and then my left side went numb. My arm was dangling like a rag. I fell forward in a sitting position. But all fear had left me, and I was consumed with rage and cursed the German trenches. With my right hand I felt in my tunic for my first aid or shell dressing. In feeling over my tunic my hand came in contact with one of the bombs which I carried. Gripping it, I pulled the pin out with my teeth, and blindly threw it towards the German trench. I must have been out of my head, because I was only ten feet from the trench, and took a chance of being mangled. 
If the bomb had failed to go into the trench, I would have been blown to bits by the explosion of my own bomb. By the flare of the explosion of the bomb, which luckily landed in their trench, I saw one big Boche throw up his arms and fall backwards, while his rifle flew into the air. Another one wilted and fell forward across the sandbags. Then blackness. Realizing what a foolhardy and risky thing I had done, I was again seized with a horrible fear. I dragged myself to my feet and ran madly down the lane through the barbed wire, stumbling over cut wires, tearing my uniform, and lacerating my hands and legs. Just as I was about to reach no man's land again, that same voice seemed to say, Turn around. I did so when, crack, another bullet caught me, this time in the left shoulder about one half inch away from the other wound. Then it was taps for me. The lights went out. When I came to, I was crouching in a hole in no man's land. The shell hole was about three feet deep, so that it brought my head a few inches below the level of the ground. How I reached this hole I will never know. German typewriters were traversing back and forth in no man's land, the bullets biting the edge of my shell hole and throwing dirt all over me. Overhead, shrapnel was bursting. I could hear the fragments slap the ground. Then I went out once more. When I came to, everything was silence and darkness in no man's land. I was soaked with blood, and a big flap from the wound in my cheek was hanging over my mouth. The blood running from this flap choked me. Out of the corner of my mouth I would try and blow it back, but it would not move. I reached for my shell dressing and tried, with one hand, to bandage my face to prevent the flow. I had an awful horror of bleeding to death and was getting very faint. You would have laughed if you had seen my ludicrous attempts at bandaging with one hand. The pains in my wounded shoulder were awful, and I was getting sick at the stomach. I gave up the bandaging stunt as a bad job, and then fainted. When I came to, hell was let loose. An intense bombardment was on, and on the whole my position was decidedly unpleasant. Then, suddenly, our barrage ceased. The silence almost hurt, but not for long, because Fritz turned loose with shrapnel, machine guns, and rifle fire. Then all along our line came a cheer, and our boys came over the top in a charge. The first wave was composed of jocks. They were a magnificent sight, kilts flapping in the wind, bare knees showing, and their bayonets glistening. In the first wave that passed my shell-hole, one of the jocks, an immense fellow, about six feet two inches in height, jumped right over me. On the right and left of me, several soldiers in colored kilts were huddled on the ground. Then over came the second wave, also jocks. One young Scotty, when he came abreast of my shell-hole, leaped into the air, his rifle shooting out of his hands, landing about six feet in front of him, bayonet first, and stuck in the ground, the butt trembling. This impressed me greatly. Right now I can see the butt of that gun trembling. The Scotty made a complete turn in the air, hit the ground, rolling over twice, each time clawing at the earth, and then remained still, about four feet from me, in a sort of sitting position. I called to him, "'Are you hurt badly, Jock?' But no answer. He was dead. A dark red smudge was coming through his tunic right under his heart. The blood ran down his bare knees, making a horrible sight. On his right side he carried his water bottle. I was crazy for a drink and tried to reach this, but for the life of me could not negotiate that four feet.' 
then I became unconscious. When I woke up, I was in an advanced first aid post. I asked the doctor if we had taken the trench. We took the trench and the wood beyond all right, he said, and you fellows did your bit, but my lad, that was thirty-six hours ago. You were lying in no man's land in that belly hole for a day and a half. It's a wonder you are alive. He also told me that out of the twenty that were in the raiding party, seventeen were killed. The officer died of wounds in crawling back to our trench, and I was severely wounded, but one fellow returned without a scratch, without any prisoners. No doubt this chap was the one who had sneezed and improperly cut the barbed wire. In the official communique, our trench raid was described as follows. All quiet on the western front, excepting in the neighborhood of Gumcourt Wood, where one of our raiding parties penetrated into the German lines. It is needless to say that we had no use for our persuaders or come-alongs, as we brought back no prisoners, and until I die, Old Pepper's words, Personally, I don't believe that that part of the German trench is occupied, will always come to me when I hear some fellow trying to get away with a fishy statement. I will judge it accordingly. End of chapter.